The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our service of Berean Baptist Church. David's, the Lord's sweet psalmist, wrote, O Lord, our God, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. Truly, that is our desire to acknowledge God's glory and to worship the name of Jesus Christ. This is our purpose for gathering here on every Sunday morning. Now, if you'd open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 4, once again, we come to this familiar place in the New Testament to impress upon our minds the command the Lord gave to worship. This is the encounter between Jesus and the woman of Samaria who met at Jacob's well, just outside the city of Sychar, and their meeting was not a chance encounter. The Lord does nothing by accident. He is the omniscient God, and he not only sees all and he knows all, he plans all. In verse number four of this chapter, the word of God says that Jesus must needs go through Samaria. He had his purpose. He had his sovereign pleasure fixed upon this stranger that he knew would be at the well, and he knew that she would leave this encounter with him, believing in him as her Messiah. Now, we've discussed the meeting in the previous messages, so I'm not going to go into the details of the event. We're using this encounter to focus our attention on the discussion that they had about worship. And you remember that they were engaged in a conversation about worship, about who was right and who was wrong about proper worship, was it the Samaritans that worshipped at Mount Gerizim, or was it the Jews that worshipped at Mount Zion at the temple? And it turns out that neither were right, because Jews and Gentiles both were guilty of doing what natural people do. They pervert worship. The Jews had turned inwardly to worship self-righteousness, and the Gentiles had turned to idols, and neither types of those That worship was with a heart that was right. Neither of these groups were worshipers. And so Jesus wrote this in John 4, 23 and 24. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And this is our subject, worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And this type of worship may not be what you think it should look like. It may not seem right to you, and that's part of the problem. Worship focuses on God and what he says and not on us and what we think. So it's a very very extremely serious thing to make worship in our image. Now, I want to continue our study today, and I'd like to hook up with the previous messages, but we don't have time to review all of that information. But I do need to emphasize to you again that worship is essential, that this is what we are made for. We are made to worship God. Our purpose in the Berean Baptist Church is to glorify God, which is one and the same with worship. 
Right worship is how we glorify God. Right worship. True glory is to worship God in spirit and in truth. And so every act that we do that complies with God's instructions, every act of obedience, that is the acknowledgement of God's right to command. And when we obey God, we worship him. Well, I'd like to take us back to the last message. We were in the third part of the outline. And if you're new or you haven't heard those parts, uh, they are posted online. You can listen to those at your convenience and catch up to where we are. But we're going to pick up our discussion with our third observation that we began last week. Thirdly, we were talking about worship defined. And I gave you a very simple, concise definition of worship. Worship is honor and adoration directed to God. A very simple definition, but not very well understood. Many are confused about it. And so you can find people who think that worship is lighting candles, worship is incense, worship is ambience, worship is liturgy, worship is peering at a cross through with sunlight streaming through stained glass windows. This is worship. Others think that worship is, well, that's the time that we get up to sing. It's the repetition of choruses or chants until we are emotionally charged. But none of that fits the definition of worship. Some of these things are contributors to worship. They are aids to worship. You know, one thing I've always said, I, I love ornate church buildings. I love church buildings with steeples. I like ones with all the aesthetics, the ambience that sets the mood for people to worship. But those things are not worship. Those are mechanical aids at best. The building and the ambience, that is not worship. In fact, we learned last week that worship begins before you enter this building because worship is not a place and it's not the mechanics of the things that are done in that place. Jesus said that the hour would come when true worshipers would not worship at Mount Gerizim or at Jerusalem because worship is not a place. Worship is an attitude of the heart. It's an attitude that's with you every day, everywhere that you are. So you needn't think that you can live the way that you want to live outside the walls of this building and then come in here and worship God in the way that he wants to be worshipped. It's just not going to happen. So how do you worship? Well, we looked at several forms of acceptable worship. I'll run through those very quickly for you. We said that acceptable worship is outward. It involves the outworking of your Christian life. When you do good, when you love your neighbor as yourself, when you help a church member that's in need, when you regard the weaker brother, those are acts of worship. Paul said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then we looked at worship as acceptable worship is inward. Right worship is dictated by your behavior. What is in your heart? What is your heart clean? You know, that, that is a question that we always ask at the Lord's Supper. Communion is a sacred time of worship. And we tell the membership that you need to come before God with a clean heart. You need to come to him with sins confessed. You need to pray before we begin. Confess your sins to God. And we always have that as a part of our, of our worship experience in the Lord's Supper. Paul said, examine yourselves. Examine yourselves. And that's not just for communion time. It's for every time that you want to come here to worship. So consider what you are inwardly. 
The outward circumstances may change, but the inward is with you every day wherever you go. What is your heart like? And how you answer that question is how you know whether you can worship God. So no matter, no matter who you are, from the pastor to the parishioner in the pew, none of us can worship God without a clean heart. David said to worshipers in Israel that wanted to approach God, he said, who shall ascend into the holy hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity nor sworn deceitfully. Then acceptable worship is upward. God must be the focus. We're saved for him. We worship him. And so we can't come here and say, what did I get out of the service? What we should think instead is about God. Was God pleased with the service? Was the truth told today? Was the word of God preached today? And if it was, who are you to say that it wasn't right because you didn't feel good about it? It's not about you. Who do we worship, self or God? And usually that answer is all too apparent. So why is it important that we review this definition of worship? It's because you need me to remind you or you need to remind yourself of the very same things every time we come into this service that we must recognize who God is before we can worship him acceptably. Now with those reminders and with this introduction, I want to give you some more important information about worship today. First, we learned that worship is regulated by truth. Secondly, we learned that worship requires the preaching of the word. And then thirdly, we've just heard about worship defined. And now fourthly, in our outline, worship must be reverent. Worship must be reverent. Reverent worship is when we recognize God's holiness. All of God's attributes rolled up and added together can be stated in one word. Holiness. Now, if you look up holiness, look up that word in a Bible dictionary. Be prepared for pages and pages of description. And yet, usually, there isn't a clear-cut definition. I don't usually recommend looking up Bible words in a regular dictionary. But let me tell you about one dictionary that you should use. There's one dictionary that I can recommend for you to look up words. And that's Webster's Dictionary of 1828. Back then, people knew something about God and his word. Webster said, Holiness denotes perfect purity or integrity of moral character. And what Webster has given us there is the definition of holiness as it applies to God. And you know what that means? It means that God is unlike any other being. And you can write that down, that holiness makes God unlike any other being. Perfect purity puts us out of reach of God. Perfect purity makes God dwell in a light that can't be approached. Paul said, our God dwells in a light that no man can approach. The glory of God is perfect purity. And what does the Bible say about his glory? Well, Paul wrote these words that spoke of the separation between us and God. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, I give thee charge in the sight of God who quickeneth all things. And before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession, that thou 
Keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. Isaiah said it well when he saw a vision of God's throne. He saw these magnificent creatures, the seraphim, crying before the throne, holy, holy, holy. Isaiah describes it, Isaiah 6.3, And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of His glory. And what a sight that must have been, the seraphim, these angels of God, saying perfect purity, perfect purity, perfect purity, holy, holy, holy. Not even the smallest speck of imperfection that you could measure with a mass spectrometer. Nothing can approach God because He's holy. And the seraphim are there to keep away anything that would touch the perfect purity of God. Isaiah commented, about his unworthiness when he saw this vision of God. And he says in verse number 5, Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of an unclean people. Mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah was rattled to the bone with the vision of God. You know of anybody in the Scriptures that fell the presence of God or came close to a manifestation of God's glory that wasn't struck with fear and awe? God's perfect holiness is the reason that Uzzah was struck dead when he touched the Ark of the Covenant. God's holiness could not permit contact with sinful man. When I think of Uzzah, I always remember that scene in the Raiders of the Lost Ark when a guy who's dressed in the clothing of a high priest He opened the ark and he looked inside and then heads exploded and faces melted. Don't take your theology from Raiders of the Lost Ark, but I don't think that would be too far off. Manoah, Samson's father, told his wife, we're going to die because we've seen God. Jacob marveled that he wrestled with the Lord and he was allowed to live. God's holiness keeps us from him. God doesn't live by a standard of holiness. He is holiness. There's only one level of holiness with him. He is all there is. And that makes him one of a kind. The only true God. Well, then here's our problem. Sin, the breach of holiness, keeps us away from God. No one will get close to God without perfect holiness. And if people could only see that, they would realize how foolish it is to think that there is some good thing that we could do that would allow us to approach God. And yet every religion that puts emphasis on man's work to redeem him, and all of the world's religions do, they are shooting so low that God will step on that bug that dares approach him. God is in the light of holiness, a perfect light that no one can approach. It's high offense, it is blasphemy to think the pitiful efforts of sacraments and penance and confessions and priestly vestments could ever make us holy or anyone holy enough to approach God. How dare 
that any man would put on white robes and sit on a church on a throne and people come and bow and kiss his ring and call him Holy Father. Each time that's done, it tramples the blood of Jesus Christ. And that is the only thing that permits us to have holiness to reach God. People do not understand how wide the gap between us and God. I I believe that one of the most disturbing developments of our godless culture is the pervasive use of profanity. Everywhere you go, everything you listen to, everything you read is more than likely articulated with the worst, most offensive gutter language that can be used. I hear it streaming from car radios, so do you. I hear it with the neighbors and even with children in the neighborhood. I hear it in the checkout lines at the stores. And sadly, sometimes I hear it occasionally from church members. Rising high on the list of commandments is the third, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. To take God's name in vain is an act of blasphemy. And so whenever you just flippantly say, OMG, oh my God, Jesus, Jesus Christ, you attack God's holiness. And when you use other words that break the New Testament commands of using filthy language and of corrupt communications, it's the same. And perhaps you don't think that way. Maybe you don't say God. Maybe you don't say Jesus. Maybe you don't say Lord disrespectfully. But you use those other all too common words and you know what they are. I don't even need to mention their first letters. You know the blank word. Did you also know that's blasphemy? And you might ask, how so? It impugns the holy God because Jesus said one, just one idle work, any idle word that you speak will come into judgment. He will judge you because you break that command of Sound, wholesome speech. And when you do, you break his word. He's commanded against that. And the word says that he exalts his name above his word. So, you don't want to challenge the holiness of God. James wrote this to swearing Christians. He said, out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Do you know what God's name is? His name represents all he is. What is God? All that he is adds up to holiness. There's holiness in his name. God said, I am. I am is my name. That makes his name so unique that he's one of a kind. His name is holiness. To speak his name without reverence is blasphemy. In his model prayer, the Son of God prayed to the Father and said, Hallowed be thy name. Reverence. Holiness to your name. Keep these things in your mind because they tell us something about how to worship God. How to worship God first. Recognize who God is. You can't worship God in spirit and truth if you don't know who he is. And I'm not speaking of him in relation to idols. I'm not speaking of him in relation to other gods. I'm not even speaking here in the sense of salvation. Of course, you must identify the right God and you must believe in him. But I mean that you need to know where you stand in the pecking order with God. You are not even in his line. Or as the Brits would say back here, you're not even in his queue. 
I once talked to a friend of mine who said that there was a teacher in his church that wanted to teach children about getting on their knees to pray. He wasn't trying to teach them a liturgy or ritual or anything like that. It wasn't an automated response like power kneelers in a Catholic church. He just meant teaching kids about reverence for God in prayer. And he said that there were people that were opposed to it. Can you imagine that someone would be opposed to bowing the knees to God in prayer? Maybe that's what I should announce with the pastoral prayer. I'd say before we pray this prayer, all of us, we need to go down to our knees. Would that help us to understand a little bit better what it means to reverence God? What it means to be in his presence? This little vignette sticks with me. I, I related this to you some years ago. I remember visiting a Catholic church in Bardstown, Kentucky. I wasn't there for a service. Uh, I was there to visit because it's an historical site. And so they would offer tours of this large church because it had some famous pieces of art. So I went there on a, on a Saturday afternoon, but I arrived just a little bit too early, and they were having a mass. I didn't know it. I slipped in the back door, and in just, uh, just a kind of curiosity, I wanted to watch what was going on. So I was standing in the back, and, and suddenly somebody hit the power button, and with a loud thud that just reverberated throughout the entire church, the power kneelers went down, and then in a split second, hundreds of people in one fluid wave of motion went straight to their knees. I was left standing in the back, sticking out like a sore thumb. They weren't worshiping God in spirit and in truth. But at least, at least, they left the impression that whatever it was that the priest was doing up there in the front, it was telling them something that they thought showed God was greater than them. I don't advocate their method. I believe the priest will answer to God for crucifying Christ in the Mass. It looked like holiness, but it wasn't. I also think about being late for worship. We begin our services at 10.30 a.m. on Sunday morning. We start with a call to worship. I ask the ushers, would you please close the doors outside? Don't let latecomers in until we finish the scripture reading. The scripture reading is part of our worship. Do we come in late on God? How much is our service lackluster because we don't give any thought to who God is? Can you imagine Isaiah called into the throne room of God? And he says, well, I've got a conversation. I need to finish up in the vestibule first. And he comes in late. And we're guilty of that from time to time. All of us are. We do it perhaps unintentionally. But there are some that just have a habit of being late. And, and they need to think more clearly about what they're doing and who they worship. Some of you, or most of you I know, you remember old John Harrison. John, who was a member of our church for many, many years. He said something to me when I was visiting him in the hospital. Sometimes John would get a little crotchety. And you, you just sort of had to get into his mind to see what he was thinking. But he said, I don't like all those conversations at the door about football and sports and all of that. People don't have their minds on the Lord when they come into church. And I said, yes, and those conversations about soccer, those are really awful. We ought to do something about it. But that was really hard for me to defend against because I get into some of those conversations too. So what could I say? Sometimes I'm right there with the rest of them. 
But that statement came back to me as I was thinking about this message. And I thought about all the visitors that come into our church. And there are those that are standing at the door in their conversations about all of these things. And they will not stop long enough to greet a visitor as he walks in the doors. What would people expect to hear? What would they expect us to talk about when we announce ourselves as a church that comes here that worships the holy God and this is what we do and yet we stand out there and talk nothing about God? Do we come in prepared to worship? Do we come in with God on our minds? Do we know who God is? Do we recognize who God is? I think we need to get serious about what Jesus said, don't we? So we may criticize Roman Catholics and Lutherans and high church for misunderstandings of worship, but at least they have this part down. They have the reverence down. The liturgies, that might not be our thing, but the reverence always should be. We don't need a hanger in our suit to keep us straight, but we do need to get back to recognizing who God is. I remember a few conversations I had with Frank Tharp. There's another old member of our church that's gone to be with the Lord. You know what Frank didn't like about this building? It, it wasn't the people. He loved the people. It wasn't the doctrine that we teach. He's perfectly fine with that. What Frank didn't like was this room. He didn't like this room because he thought a church ought to have pews. A church ought to have a vaulted ceiling. He loved that, that, that in a church What he didn't like was this room because he couldn't imagine that somebody would double a sanctuary as a gym. To him, that was just too far beyond good possibilities. Worship is not ambience, but we do need to be more careful about how our minds can be taken off of God and who he is and why we're here. We've added in these past years more scripture reading to our services, more reverence, I think. But we've got a ways to go. We need to know who we are and who God is. Now, in recognition of who God is, reverence also means that we must fear who God is. Fear is a huge part of recognition, isn't it? We've forgotten to fear God, which in itself is a very scary thing. Because when you forget who God is, you will forget to fear who God is. Now let me tell you about how our fear has suffered a terrible decline in the past few decades, maybe maybe even more than, or I know, more than a hundred years ago. It started back in the 19th century with revivalism. And I know this is sacred ground for many people. You may not like what I'm about to say. Revivalism had some good in it. There were good intentions. The start of it was right. The purpose was right. Because this country was in need of revival. But I think over the long haul of that movement, things got off track. And some of the proponents thought that their skewed methods to reach people was justified by the results. And we still see this today. We still see the leftovers of that today when there are churches that have gimmicks and games and weird promotions. I've seen some of these churches with the wheel of fortune on the platform and Spinning that and giving out prizes to the congregation. Taping dollar bills under the seats. All kinds of gimmicks to get people into church. But revivalism's worst effect was that it twisted the theology of salvation. That was good that fundamentalism came out of it. Fundamentalism 
defended Bible inerrancy when it was attacked by higher criticism in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. But while fundamentalism concentrated on the inerrancy of the Bible, it forgot some of the doctrines that were contained in the Bible. And the result was that Bible knowledge, I mean knowing what the Bible means, began to crumble at the hands of fundamentalism. Now, I'll tell you that we still believe all the fundamentals of the faith. Don't make any mistake about that. But did you know that today, amongst others, fundamentalism has become known as a code word for ignorance? Now, hold on just a minute. Don't get angry with me. I'm not speaking of what the theologically liberal crowd says. I'm not speaking of what the reprobates say. I am speaking of those who are genuinely interested in what the Bible says, and they want to stand for truth on the entire Bible, and they want to understand what does it mean. And they find that fundamentalism means blind ignorance of Scripture. And we're sorry about that. We can speak on strong doctrinal issues, and many of these people are like deer in the headlights. They are functionally ignorant of subjects, even like this one that we're speaking of today. Now, let me tell you about one of the things that revivalism did to worship. It took out much of the fear of God. How did they do that? Well, they did it with a change in music. Music has a huge impact on people, and if you don't believe that, then you just see how hard it is to attract people to church without a worship band, without a service that's devoted primarily to music. Revivalism's contribution to music was a downgrade, and that came when they started to take theological content out of the songs. And so instead of concentrating on fear of God, the fear of God was replaced with familiarity with God. Now, if you're taking notes on this, you might want to put this down. This is an important statement. Familiarity replaced fear. What do I mean? Well, the subject of the songs changed from fear to feelings. So you have fear, familiarity, and feelings, and those three things are out of proportion. So we stopped singing about reverence for God, and we started to sing about Jesus as our friend. Jesus became our buddy. Jesus became the guy that will play games with you when you're lonely. Jesus is the guy that you can go up to and you can throw your arms around and you can say, come on, man, I love you, man. And we lost that sense of standing in the presence of holy God. You understand what I mean? We brought God down to our level. We got way too familiar and we lost the godly presence. Jesus got into our boat, and he stilled the storm, he calmed the seas, and we looked at that and we said, well, that's kind of special, you know. And we went about our business just sailing along with Jesus. And there was no reaction that the disciples had. You know what it says about them? They were terrified. Why? Because they were in the presence of God. Like the woman that touched Jesus in the crowd... Jesus perceived that virtue had gone out of him. He knew that he was touched by one person in a special way, even as many were brushing against him as he went through the crowd. She knew that she was found out. Mark says that she feared, she trembled, and she fell down before Jesus and told him the truth. But we're so familiar with Jesus that we walk up to him and we slap him on the back like some guy on the church softball team. Do you understand what I'm saying? 
Music has downgraded Jesus. Jesus is just our friend. And there is no sense that he is holy God. So what do you get? Well, you get people today that tell stories about how Jesus appeared in their bedroom last night. Jesus showed up in the bathroom this morning. And you say, what did you do about that? Did you slit your throat with a razor out of fear? Oh, no, no. Uh, Did you fall prostrate on the floor and say, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Did you do that? No, no, no. Me and Jesus, we, I just kept on shaving. We had a good old conversation. Two old friends slapping each other on the back and talking about good old days. And he said, oh, what happened? Oh, well, Jesus was in the bedroom last night. He hovered over the bed and he just sort of hung out. Folks, if Jesus appeared in his glory, you wouldn't hang out. You would wet the bed out of fear. You wouldn't be telling people what you saw. Zacharias couldn't speak for nine months. And all he saw was an angel. All he saw was an angel of God. You can't imagine if you saw God. Moses hid his face in fear from God. Ah, but you have these charismatics. They have their dreams and their visions of God like they were watching Tuesday night television. Oh, guess I saw, guess what? I saw God last night. No fear. We've suffered a downgrade of fear of the holiness of God. So I've come to the place that I've got kind of tired of songs that came out of the revival period. Others are upset about them because they are truly convinced. Wow, these are the old songs of Zion. These are the hymns of Zion. You take those songs and you compare them to a mighty fortress is our God. You compare them to any song that's written by Isaac Watts or John Newton or William Cooper. Compare them to the sovereign grace songs that we sing. They don't stand up because it's more about us feeling good than it is about worshiping God. The lyrics of our songs reflect our theological understanding. And when you dumb down the message that we preach, then you will dumb down the music that we sing. And we no longer worship God knowing who God is and fearing who God is. Now if you'll turn to Hebrews chapter 12 for just a moment. This is the chapter that follows the roll call of the faithful and you recognize this because it begins with wherefore seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses maybe sometime it'd be good for us to go over that verse and common misinterpretations of it but I want you to look a few verses down if you look in verse number 14 of Isaiah 12 it says follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord That's what we talked about earlier. You can't see God without holiness. And you don't have any self-generated holiness that will help you to appear in God's presence. Well, the writer goes on to discuss Moses on Mount Sinai and how there was great fear of approaching the mountain because God was there. The mountain quaked with fire and smoke. That came from it because God's presence was there when he met with Moses. It goes on to say the sight was so terrible that Moses, the great man of God, said, I exceedingly fear and quake. Now, if you'll look at verse 25. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escape not who refuse him that spake on earth, how much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth? But now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. 
And this word, yet once more, signified the removing of those things that are shaken, as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Look at that. Let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Do you know how that ends? Verse number 29. For our God is a consuming fire. That is the sum of Isaiah's fear when he saw the throne of God. Hebrews references Moses on Mount Sinai and God said, Do not touch this mountain lest you die. Do not come up here in the fire and the smoke and the lightning and the thunder. And they didn't because they feared God. But it goes on to say, But you have not come to Mount Sinai, you have come to Mount Zion, in the city of the living God, you have come to the new Jerusalem, into the presence of mighty angels. In other words, he says, get down on your knees, remember whose presence you are in, fear God. And this is the reason that so much of our worship is messed up and not pleasing to God, because we just walked in lazily and late and without God on our minds, and we just sauntered up to Him and we touched His mountain. You can't do it. If you come in without holiness, without confession, without contrition, without consecration, without concentration, if you do not walk humbly with your God, there will be no worship. Thank God for this. He doesn't leave dead bodies strewn throughout this auditorium like he used to do. Are you not intimidated by God? Is there any intimidation there? Do you not fear God? Be careful how familiar that you get with him. Understand me. He loves you. He wants you to talk with him. He wants you to call on him for help. He is close to you. He sticks closer than a brother. He is a friend. But he is not like you. Don't turn your fear of him into feelings of familiarity. Make no mistake, you are not like God. He is unique, one of a kind. What's your attitude about God? What about your reverence? What about your recognition of his holiness? What about your fear of his power and his might? Get him right in your mind. If you don't worship him in spirit and in truth, make sure you know who God is before you claim to worship him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ before whose name today we humbly bow. Lord, though we do recognize that you are our friend, we do recognize that you love us. We understand, even as we talk to you right now, that this is what you desire from us, to come humbly before you and speak to you, to ask our request, and to glorify your name in prayer, to give thanksgiving, all of these things. But what you do not ask is for us to come without fear, without reverence, without recognizing that you are so far above us that there is no hope that we could ever approach you unless we come through the righteousness, the holiness of Jesus Christ that we have given to us by faith in him. So, Lord, you expect us to come with repentance, 
And though we may spend our days outside of this church and all of us sin, we're not saying that we don't. I don't claim not to sin. I don't claim that there aren't bad thoughts that come into my mind. I I don't claim that I'm so much different from people and so holier than anyone else. Don't claim it at all. But I do know this, that you promise to cleanse us from our sins. You promise that when we confess our sins, that you take all of that away. All of this is put on Jesus Christ by faith in him. And there, there's, all of that is, is, is taken care of. And so if we just come in confession of sin before we come into this building, and we honestly say, we fear you, Lord. We reverence you, Lord. We know who you are. We want you to accept our worship. We do know this is what you will do. And then when we come in here, we won't be unhappy with sermons. We won't be unhappy with preachers who step on our toes and tell us what we ought to do. But rather we'll say, thank God for somebody that talked me about holiness and how to come in the right way before God. We certainly pray, Lord, that you'd help us to do this. Come before you in fear and reverence. Help our people today, Lord. Speak to our hearts. And may we from this day forward remember this every time that we come into the building. You are holy God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Brian Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roner Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.